My name is Faden Papa Michael, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben Rock, producer, director, and book signer extraordinaire. How are you today? Ilya Friedman, proprietor of Hot Rod Cameras and HotRodCameras.com. By golly, it's good to talk to you. It's been been so long long time. That's right. Uh, The joke is, of course, we did this yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's cool, though, because we're releasing two episodes this week, and we're very excited to have our returning champion right now. first three-peat. Yes, three times. Fade in, Papa Michael. The amazing DP of uh, many, many movies that you've loved. Last year's Ford v. Ferrari. And uh, coming up on Netflix uh, very, very soon is The Trial of the Chicago 7. Writ and directed by the one and only Aaron Sorkin. That's right. And shot by the one and only Faden Papa Michael. So, you know, uh, we, we've spent now a serious amount of time with, with Faden. And he brings it every time. The, like, if you listen to all three interviews, every single one is something different. And we get to, to know, you know, more and more about him. Uh, I did a chat with him mostly about Ford v. Ferrari. And Ben, you did like a two hour. I, I think it was live. two hour. It, it was, was our live. first our first live uh, thing at uh, when you were doing Cinebeer. When That's right. Way back in the before times when we were allowed to be in rooms with each other. That's right. Live podcasting at its finest. And uh, the beer was flowing. And uh, yeah, we got we got Faden's full backstory. Faden's awesome. And it should be noted, although it won't be in this episode, Faden gave us his first war story and his war story will not disappoint you. Not at all. It's a good one. All right. So, so Ben, why don't we dive into close focus? Uh, What is uh, what's happening in the world right now? What do we need to talk about? Well, it's not really what's happening in the world right now because I'm uh, honestly sick and tired of talking about COVID nineteen. I mean, if I wait, wait a second, I've never heard of this thing. What is what is COVID nineteen? COVID nineteen. It's a really cool energy drink. Oh, I I thought it was the sequel to COVID (laughs) eighteen. I I I hate it. They didn't get it right the first eighteen times. You know, there was a lot of unanswered questions. (laughs) It's like James Bond. Yeah. So uh, no, what I wanted to talk about was uh, it's an article in the Guardian called hmm. Miller's Crossing at 30, the Coen Brothers' unknowable gangster drama. Oh, my and God. I, I have I, to I say, love this already. You, you know this is my favorite movie. Well, I did not know that it was your favorite movie. I knew that you liked it. You and I have talked about it, and I would say it's probably in my top two or three movies of all time. I, I've seriously watched this movie dozens of times, studied it. It's one of the best-constructed pieces of cinema. And, you know, the Coen Brothers, whose work I adore, you know, depending on what day of the week you talk to me, it's, you know, probably my top Coen Brothers movie. Although uh, on certain days, I might say The Big Lebowski. On certain days, I might say Fargo. On certain days, I might say Inside Lewin Davis. Mm. I think that they, they have a rather impressive filmography. But what's crazy about Miller's Crossing to me is that this is their third film. Yeah. So they made Blood Simple, which is a friggin' masterpiece. Then they made Raising Arizona. Also incredible. Just Top to bottom, amazing, yeah. Hilarious, funny. And so they made like a, a gritty uh, noir, neo-noir movie in Blood Simple. Then they made a cartoonish, almost wily coyote type bonkers crime caper movie. Very funny. I'll also, up, say, hold, 
Oh and yeah, I'm just going to underscore exactly what you're saying. The first 10 minutes of that movie, the first 10 pages of that script, that has got to be the most entertaining exposition introduction to any movie I've ever seen. Yes. I love the scene where he's like in the in the jail cell and it's looking down and the guy keeps talking about, you know, how they ate sand and stuff. <laughs> you ate what? You ate I sand? Ate sand. <laughs> and then their third movie is a handsome as fuck gangster epic that I uh, I have dissected this movie. I have watched it so many times. There, it, it's one of the best examples of uh, action happening off screen being almost as important as what's happening on screen and kind of minor things that are like pulling strings and making major changes in the movie. And, and one of the things I also find interesting is that in a gangster drama, there is a subplot about a gay love triangle that kind of kicks everything off. And it's like, you know, depression era. With you John know, Turturro. John Turturro. It's John Turturro, Steve Buscemi, and uh, I'm sorry, I forget the actor's name who plays Eddie Dane. But it's those three guys are in a, a gay love triangle. Basically, the movie is the intersection of two love triangles. And it, it's just so pitch perfect and yet it still has kind of the dark humor and i think it had the unfortunate coincidence of coming out the same year as a little movie you might have also heard of called goodfellas yeah oh yeah and you know major props to john polito i think that's john polito's uh, finest role and uh i as- met john polito i mean i actually shadowed on a tv series that he was on i shadowed the director and i was unbelievably intimidated like i don't really get starstruck when i meet movie stars He's but johnny casper is oh, one of my favorite cinematic characters ever and he was he was a a warm and sweet guy unfortunately passed away a few years ago uh john polito uh was a friend of a friend of mine and uh holy crap that guy is that guy is so nice and and you know uh, here here's a big difference between us though uh I have not even though it's my favorite movie I've only seen it I think six times uh, I actually don't movies that I really really love I don't want to ever lose the magic I don't dissect oh interesting them. I I have the opposite I feel like I have to savor this I can maybe watch them once a year oh can I tell like you the, the magic of how I saw it the first time sure I was on a blind date Ooh. <laughs> with someone who I did not get along with oh okay and we went to see it at a movie theater I'd never been to because she lived on a side of town that I never went to mm-hmm and it, it, it it's more complex than this and i'll tell you off mike um but in the middle of miller's crossing the uh the power went out in the whole theater and they had to evacuate us oh man i think, I think there was a fire or something and so i didn't finish seeing it in the theater in its theatrical run i didn't i didn't finish seeing it till it came out on vhs tape also, I, I, it should be noted, too, by the way, uh, speaking of it looking a certain way, mm. uh, it is the last movie that Barry Sonnenfeld uh, shot for the Coen brothers before he kind of went off famously and became a big time director himself with, you know, the Adams Family movies and some of the other stuff he did. And, and, and Barry Sonnenfeld, what an incredibly spectacular career as a as a DP, too. I mean, his his stuff is just, you know, jumps out, jumps off the no, screen. Even, he's even he's in, amazing. He, he levels up whatever he does. Then they switched to some hack named Roger. Yes. <laughs> their, their next movie, Barton Fink, shot by Roger Deakins. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so. 
won the Palm d'Or. You know, I mean, like, you know, they, they were just onward and upward. But Miller's Crossing is like a really it, it, it to me, it also starts a weird pattern. You see, if you if you kind of watch the chronology of Coen Brothers movies mm. in that they make one movie and set an expectation for what their next movie is going to be or like, hey, here's the thing they do. So they made Raising Arizona. And I'm sure everyone was and it was a success. And I, I think and they talk about this in this Guardian article a little bit. And then everybody's expecting their next movie to be like a zany comedy. And they make this gangster, uh, yeah. ingenious Noir. gangster movie. Yeah. Just so good. And they do it all the time. Like when they, you know, were winning Oscars and stuff for Fargo, their next movie was The Big Lebowski. And I think that a lot of people, when they saw The Big Lebowski, there was kind of a, what? What the hell is this? Because they were <laughs> expecting something like Fargo. And it's like, it is like Fargo, but not like you think it's going to be like Fargo. Yeah. I, I think of them all as sort of like fractured fairy tales. And, uh, they, they, they work in that space really wonderfully. And, you know, um, uh, I love Hudsucker Proxy, which I think, yeah, that was, that must've followed right after Barton Fink. Yeah. It was Barton Fink, then Hudsucker Proxy. I saw Hudsucker Proxy on the weekend in the middle of the shoot of my senior thesis film. Big fan of that. Uh, And they talk in this Guardian article and we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, but they talk about sort of the genesis of the idea that, you know, like how Miller's Crossing came about. And I feel like you know, the Coens have such a storied career and they've made so many well-known, well-respected, beloved movies. But I feel like this is one of their movies that kind of falls through the cracks a little bit. And I Agreed. also would argue it is probably their movie that has my absolute favorite sequence they ever did, which is the sequence at uh, Albert Finney's house. Uh, the character's name is Leo. When uh, these gangsters come to kill him and burn down his house. And uh, it's <laughs> it just doesn't go the according whole, to plan. <laughs> the whole sequence is just a pure cinematic delight and outrageously violent. And and the Carter Burwell score that swells underneath it is just like it's it's powerful and amazing. The, and every yeah. single thing that could be firing on all cylinders is firing. I, I only have one complaint about the movie, and that's a scene where Marcia Gay Harden, her in her first on-screen role, throws a glass at Gabriel Byrne uh, playing Tommy, hits a mirror, it shatters. They cut away. They cut back. It's a different shatter pattern. They use two different takes. I have I have been so tempted you, you had a in, af- in After Effects you. to fix it. Uh, I, I, you know what? I'm glad I'm glad you left that imperfection there, and now you can look yeah. for it every time. It is such a beautiful film, so brilliantly photographed. Everybody, if you're hearing our voices here, check out the Guardian article. Read about it. If you can get a hold of Miller's Crossing anywhere, you can get it. Uh, I don't know if I don't even know if it's streaming anywhere. I don't think it's on uh, Netflix. I'm sure it's on Amazon. You can probably pick up the DVD on eBay for about six dollars. I, I, <laughs> it's one of those ones that like it seems like at garage sales and stuff. It, I always it is I, it is just I, a, I, a beautiful film filmed in uh, Louisiana mm. and uh, just also just great cast. Gabriel Byrne, Marsha Gay Harden, Albert Finney, John Tuturo, John Polito. Steve Buscemi, you know, some of these people are people who you'll recognize in a lot of other Coen Brothers movies. And then some people, you know, like Albert Finney stepped into the role. And this is in that article. I forget the actor's name, but he was the actor who played Nathan Arizona in Raising Arizona was going to play the mob boss. And then he like had a brain aneurysm and died like a week before filming started. and, And Albert Finney replaced him at the last minute. And I can't imagine anyone but Albert Finney in that role. It's really hard because it's almost iconic now. He he's he just is this incredible, you know. He's a mob boss, but yeah. he's sort of the lovable mob boss. <laughs> it's like you know. It's, well, and it's Albert a- Finney is an amazing actor with a with a storied history. But I I have to say this is my favorite role he ever played. 
Uh, agreed. Agreed. It's, also, uh, if anyone in Orlando is listening to this, there's a guy named John Drackett who's an Orlando-based filmmaker, and he's an extra in one of the scenes, and he pointed it out to me where he is. And whenever I see this scene, all I can my eye just goes straight to John Drackett every time. It's the problem with knowing people who are extras in scenes. It ruins the scene for you because you're always looking at the extra who you know. You're like, oh, there's John. I mean, he doesn't do anything wrong. He he, he acquits himself fine. He he just looks like a you know like a lug. Uh, yeah, I am only an extra in one movie, and uh, it's not a good scene for me. I'm an extra in a couple David Pryor movies, but I promise you, you would not even see me because I'm in a giant crowd. I'm also in a, a Nietzsche Keen film called Heroin of Hell that I was the makeup artist in, and I'm in the background walking behind Catherine Keener in one scene. That's one of the things I don't really talk about a lot in the really low-budget world. A lot of crew people will end up in the oh, movie as extras always. all the time because it's like, like, oh, we're short an extra. Can you, like, sit over here for 10 minutes? And Even David Pryor's highest-budget movie that he ever made, which I think was, like, a million and a half, was Mutant Species. And in the opening sequence, there's, like, four guys in hazmat suits walking this, uh, whatever, germ warfare weapon through uh, Space Camp. We actually shot in Huntsville, Alabama at Space Camp. And I'm one of them, but you can't see any of our faces. So, like... I don't. I couldn't even tell you which one I was now because it was so long ago. Yeah, my my very first second AC job was on a Lifetime movie of the week, and uh, I think the first day of shooting I was an extra. I think the ninth day of shooting I was an extra, and I think then like the fifteenth and sixteenth day it was an extra. It was like yeah, they kept they kept uh, yeah I, they kept needing. People I for always shots. worked with such tight ass first ads that would never recycle a crew member as an extra unless you were completely out of focus. Yeah, uh, yeah, there was some out of focus and uh, definitely some foreground action sort of stuff like, you know, wiping cameras and all those things. Anyway, hey, uh, we're, we're going really far afield. It sounds like an awesome article. I now have to read it. It's in The Guardian. I'll look forward to our own show notes so I can I can read mm-hmm. this. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and uh, and get into this interview with Fade and Papa Michael talking about working on the trial of the Chicago 7 with Aaron Sorkin. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, we are here uh, transcontinentally talking for the third time. I believe our returning champion, Faden Papa Michael, this is your third time on the podcast. We can't thank you enough for coming on. We wanted to talk to you about your upcoming uh, movie, which I believe will have dropped by the time this episode is released, called The Trial of the Chicago 7, directed, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, the legendary Aaron Sorkin. So th- firstly, just thank you so much for coming back uh, and doing this with us and uh, for your time. Um, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This time from Greece. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> we love your work. And uh, The Trial of Chicago 7 is is such a uh, such an interesting visual movie because, you know, it's kind of got a courtroom component that we spend a lot of time in. But then it flashes backwards and forwards and, and in, into all this stuff in the 1960s. You know, it's about the, the trial of Abby Hoffman, et cetera, et cetera. I, I always think it's interesting because uh, we did talk to uh, Shalotta Bruce Christensen, who shot Molly's Game for Aaron Sorkin I'm interested to talk to people who shoot for people who are primarily writers like Aaron Sorkin isn't just known as a writer he's a brand as a writer that's what he's he's known for what's the approach to collaboration when you know that a lot of what you're undergirding is really dialogue well I mean that was the first question I asked Stuart Besser who's a producer uh, who had done uh, 310 to Yuma with and Identity and he did Molly's Game Mm-hmm. Uh, he brought me on and, you know, uh, he arranged, uh, my, my meeting with Aaron, I, w- I was still actually, uh, on post. I was still, I was in LA. I was really not going to do another movie. This was going to come together fairly quick shoot. You know, we met in October. It was going to be done by Christmas. So oh, wow. 
it was, uh, yeah, why don't you just come meet, uh, you know, Aaron at the Four Seasons? And uh, I'm like, sure. And then um, because I'd actually read Molly's Game and, you know, I'd heard uh, their stories about it. I mean, that, that script was 200 pages. And, uh, you know, I have a hard time reading scripts because I have to read a lot of them and often they're not that exciting. And But this... <laughs> You know, you get a 200-page script. You go, okay, great. Like, where am I going to do that? And and that that was such a page turner. And so uh, they're intrigued, of course. Uh, just the, the whole non-linear, overlapping dialogue on scenes and flash forwards, flashbacks. I mean, yeah. Um, of course, you know, my hesitation is anybody's. You know, first instinctive reaction would be, okay, courtroom drama you know, limited blocking, everyone's always sitting in the same seats, more or less, you know, there's the defendant's table, there's the judge, there's the witness box, there's the jury, and then there's the floor where the persecutor or the defender gets to, you know, roam a little bit, there's a little bit of flexibility there for some movement, but it's it's fairly, you know, it's approach may I approach, the jury may I approach, <laughs> you know, so I'm obviously concerned about that. 60% of it, I, I would say, take place in this courtroom. Of course, 60s, you know, great characters, great story. But anyway, we go, but let's go in order. So, so Aaron, so I met, so we had a talk and Aaron said, okay, great. I mean, I'm going to rely heavily on you. <laughs> uh, you know, it's complicated. I mean, I, I know in Molly's game, I mean, it's nobody's fault, but I mean, that whole thing of having a person who's really his expertise is not to construct something for this, um, you know, visually. And, and yeah. uh, it's all about the word. It's all about the rhythm. He literally wants the person who speaks to be on camera, not really interested in reaction shots and cutaways, options editorially, because he doesn't need options because the way it functions in his head is super precisely constructed. You know, one thing leads, one beat leads to this specific image, and, and that's why his visual uh, inputs were very specific. Like, I'll, I'm going a little out of order, but for that's example, right, there's fine. the ride scene where they cross the bridge, and it's fairly elaborate setup. It's a night exterior in Chicago. There's, you know, hundreds of extras. There's the riot police, the daily dozers, these jeeps with barbed wire and everything. And Aaron kept saying, got to get the bottle impacting, you know, on the pavement. Got to get that shot. I'm like, yeah, we'll get that shot. It's an insert, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, right now we're staging, you know, I'm lighting the park and I'm, you know, yeah. putting tear gas and I'm staging like hundreds of people coming from this bridge and hundreds of people there and lining up all and the spotlights on the Jeeps. And yeah, but we got to, got to get, got to get the insert of the bottle. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's because these, these are the images, his visual input are like literally that. It's like, I need, I need that because that triggers a line in, you know, in this very specific point of the trial. And then same, you know, got to get a close up of a head getting hit and blood flowing because, you know, as the movie, I don't know if you've seen it actually. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, you know, when Tom Hayden goes, blood will flow, you know, let the blood flow, blood will flow all over the city. It's, it's like he associates very specific just flash images and, and therefore he's not really interested in extra stuff. So on Molly's game uh, and everybody's defense, uh, you know, as, as a cinematographer, of course, you know, we want to help, we want to give options, we want to create shots. We, I work, you know, my experiences with Mangold and, you know, he's a 
a filmmaker who's also very good technically, went to CalArts, went to, yes. does photography himself as a hobby, uh, is really involved in the color correction, the contrast, the saturation. I mean, it's, you know, he's, okay, we need, you know, every, get entrance and exits. I mean, he's like, he knows exactly what the piece he needs, but like also like in how it works and the movement and all of that. Like, let's do this slow pushing, you know, when he goes, no, no, this pushing just a little bit slower, get the, bring the camera down like an inch. Whereas Aaron is like, I just gotta see the person and, and, and I can't really have shots that will mess with my rhythm, which it's, it's like, it's like a, it's like a poem, you know, it's like it has yeah. a beat, it has a rhythm. And, and so therefore you really don't want to enforce or talk him into anything that he doesn't really feel he needs because it's just, first of all, it's a waste of his time. It's a waste of uh, how he's going to construct the movie or how it's constructed. I mean, I typically say a movie gets made, you know, three times really it gets when it's conceived and the writing, mm -hmm. and then it kind of like takes on a, its own life form when you execute it when, during principal photography, and then it gets kind of reinvented and finalized in the editorial process. And and I think in Aaron's case, it's an exception because the way it's conceived on page is, you know, what your job and goal should be as a cinematographer, which is to bring the, your director's vision, whether he can express it technically or not, to get the closest to that. Yeah. And is really, do not divert, do not really mess that up because the most important thing is, you know, how he sees these beats play. And then not necessarily visual beats, but they're words, but you don't want to have that second process, the execution, the shooting, destroy that rhythm. Yeah. So, and I think that's where, you know, on, his, on Molly's game, it was a learning experience for him. But, you know, maybe I think sometimes he just felt like he wasn't really in control or didn't really understand why they're doing these kind of shots or why shots are being created. So, you know, uh, I mean, of course he needed a lot of help on my end, but I, you know, again, I mean, I was, I, I was trying to, to really only have things that are useful. Now in a courtroom, especially reactions are very important because there's one person talking, interrogating one person, there's hundreds of people present, you know, everything yeah. that is said and every action is all based on reactions, not like a dialogue scene at a dinner table, you know, it's like people are listening, that the jury is being affected. So, you know, often we do a scene and he'd be, we're done, right? I'm like, we gotta get the jury, gotta get the judge, gotta get the Black Panthers in the back, gotta get the journalists. And he'd do it, and he and, and I do think he appreciates it. Of course, I also talked with the editor before shooting, who also was involved in Molly's game, and, and you know, he was, please get, you know, hell, I mean, you know, get, because also knowing Aaron, and he was worried, didn't know I hadn't worked with him. I mean, I'm actually a pretty good candidate for a shooting for Aaron because, you know, with Mangle, we're pretty traditional and, you know, we don't do crazy experimental. I mean, we're traditional Hollywood filmmakers, which, I mean, Aaron saw Ford versus Ferrari and, you know, the fact that he really responded to that kind of old school Hollywood filmmaking. I mean, I, I got a good sense of what he likes and what he doesn't like. And, uh, you know, but he's a very complex mind and, and uh, you know, it's very hard to really fully understand uh, everything you know it's so multi-layered and complex and to find every little detail of what goes on in his brain is, is a challenge uh, but uh, you know as a cinematographer I do want to 
explore it and, and, and give him all that. But I did know that he responded to Ford versus Ferrari, which I thought he would, and was very complimentary. So I felt like, you know, this, this, this sort of mangled approach and adding and helping him with the tricks that we do, which is how we color things, how we block things, how we move actors, how we create close-ups, not just cutting. You know, one thing Aaron said to me in the beginning uh, was, I like long lenses, you know, I, can, you, can we use long lenses? And I'm like, and I know why he likes saying he wants to have a close-up, you know? Yeah. And I go, well, the way we do long lens or the way I like it is I like to be physically close, but with a slightly wider lens. And, you know, again, I defaulted back to my anamorphic expanded with the LF format. And I don't think he was ultimately aware that we're not doing long lenses because he never, you know, he got what he needed and I got what I needed. I was able to basically include coverage in, in the close-up by creating some depth and raking and using these wider lenses that still felt like long lenses because they expanded LF medium format size lenses. So uh, anyway, it's, it's about finding, you know, to how, to, how to make it work. But yeah, it's, it's a definitely a very unique and new experience for me. I mean, I've worked with non-technical filmmakers that said, oh, you just do your light thing and whatever you do with a camera. And I never got them back then when we didn't really, when we had film cameras and I, would ask him, you want to check the look through the finder? Oh, no, that's okay. You know, from working to Gordabinsky, who is like everything is storyboarded, pre vis you yeah. know, he's his cocktail in the DI. You know, we did Weatherman and Mouse Hunt, and it's so specific, and he knows more about, you know, optics and uh, things than I do. I mean, I'm not that technical. I don't consider myself, you know, I don't really keep up to date with every new thing that comes out. It's just, <laughs> you know, it's just, um, I do. I mean, when I have a project, I look into what tools are available at the time. But, you know, in between, I mean, if you're just constantly like trying to keep up, you know, no, you anyway, so, but, so but um, yeah. well, you, you touched on this a little bit. And I, I think it's an interesting thing because we see lots of courtroom dramas, you know, and, and they're, you know, obviously humongous, famous classic movies that are set in courtrooms. What are the cliches, the tropes? the like the pitfalls that you were trying to avoid given that you had to do as you said 60 percent of the movie in this courthouse i just tried to keep the different groups connected visually mm -hmm. uh, i just didn't want okay cut to the defendants cut to the persecution cut to the judge cut to the jury i mean i tried to and i tried to bring whoever is taking the floor and i tried to you know instead of cutting to a close i tried to have, have him walk to a certain place where he lands in a close up that then also by rotating over slides and reveals the witness rather than cutting to the witness, things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky because the layout is what it is. I mean, and, and I, I applied multiple cameras. There's also, you know, some of these scenes ran 16 pages. I mean, the, the whole trial ran from September 69 to February. So I'm also creating this whole timeline visually where I'm assigning certain moods to certain scenes kind of randomly, but I know I have fall, winter, spring, and went through all the days in the courtroom and thought, well, this scene might be more appropriate if it plays a bit like it's a gray winter day outside. And then this, mm -hmm. you know, opening day one, opening the trial, I made it more optimistic. So I have sunbeams coming in and um, it's, you know, there's still hope and it's kind of a show and the whole world is watching and there's that energy that they bring and you know the belief 
but you know they're actually going to make a statement that's going to affect the world, which they did, of course. But you know there's still a lot of optimism, and and then you know some very tragic things and some very awful developments happen throughout. And you know, so I mean, I I had to make this whole timeline. I assigned a certain looks and lights, mm-hmm. uh, mood situations to scenes. You know, so I, I tried to change things up with light. And I had the opportunity because the trial took place over such a long period of time. But, you know, like I said, created different moods for the courtroom. I didn't want to get lazy and, okay, it's courtroom lighting. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty easy, right? You could just kind of more or less do the trial always took place during the same hours every day. It's not like you got a night scene, a dusk scene, a sun scene. Yeah. You know, it's always like 10 to 4 or whatever the hours were. So I played a little bit with the, having the advantage that it took place over such a long period that I played with the moods and the weather and the seasons. And I, I had to be very practical with it because it is a low-budget movie. It's a very limited amount of shooting days. I'm, oh, really? I, I think I mean, it was like 35. Whoa. And you, you brought up the idea of block shooting, and that was one thing that I was kind of, you know, when I see a movie where a lot of it takes place in one room, but over over a course of days, like the producer is always going to push to block shoot. Like, okay, so let's just light up the the seat where the witness sits and, and just do everybody. In, in well, a yeah, I mean, we would never do that. And we would never do that with Mangold. And I would have not done it uh, uh, if it wasn't really for not having the people, you know, because yeah. I, I put myself in a position where I could change the lighting and I'm fine, you know, turning around and, uh, well, and that was kind of my question is like, I, while I was watching it, it didn't feel like it had been block shot at all. No, and, and, but you uh, also don't want to do it for the performers and stuff. And, you know, yeah. we had a very interesting configuration of cast with very different kind of methods and you know so we have british actors you know eddie redmayne is you know trained precise british actor then you have mark rylance who's a theater director also himself and of course has worked in films in america but you know very specific about how he prepares and how he moves and he's very precise and yeah uh, for example i would tell him Sorry, Mark, if you're over there, um, you're uh, out of shot and in, in this third camera. And it's actually very nice because I see all the defendants and you on the edge. So if you could just stand here. And he goes, well, I would never stand here because then my back would be to these two other defendants. I go, but doesn't play that way in the shot. But uh, he says, you and I live in a different space. <laughs> um, you know, it was just, it's, it was very difficult. So then you have that. Then you have Jeremy Strong, who's has done a lot of television and is a very method actor and, uh, you know, and has a lot of ideas and creates a lot of freedom. But also then you got Sasha Baron Cohen, who's a writer, producer, director himself, who also is full of input and ideas, of course, and uh, always trying to suggest, and which is great. It's all part of the process. And then you yeah. have Aaron, who's really not that interested in having anybody alter anything from what is this thing in his mind, yeah. including what I'm doing, including what the actor is doing. But, I, you know, I'm used to it from Alexander Bitt, who's also a very precise writer, but you see something like Sideways, and Sideways doesn't feel written and constructed at all yeah. because you've got Thomas Hayden Church and Paul Giamatti, and you feel like they're really just jazzing yeah. the dialogue and stuff. But it's like once Thomas Hayden Church asked Alexander, do you mind if I say this word instead of that word? And Alexander is thinking for a very long time. I can't do it now. The time on your show won't allow it. And eventually he goes, no, let's just stick with the screenplay. 
And that's how Aaron is. It's because he's thought about it for a long, long time. And there's yeah, a yeah. very specific reason why he's saying this word and not that word. And, and so with, with Sasha, you know, there's always, you know, it's just so we had a very diverse group of uh, methods of acting. And I mean, I had to also try and facilitate that because the blocking and all of that fell upon my shoulders very often because Aaron left it up to me to set the shots and then uh, light it and uh, also make the shot list. I mean, really, in terms of coverage, I was dictating all the, all the shots mm. to the script supervisor. So um, anyway, just then to move on to out of the courtroom, luckily we're leaving the courtroom all the time and, and injecting yeah. these vignettes of pieces that are approached visually very different where the courtroom is composed and more classical and not a lot of movement. There's some uh, connectivity there uh, with some moves and slider moves, and, but it's more or less static and uh, more classically composed and lit. Uh, of course, when we leave, I mean, the inspiration came, first of all, a lot of times you leave, we're literally leaving for like five seconds or 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, so you have to tell a whole riot scene, you know, thousands of demonstrators crossing these bri bridges from Grand Park to Michigan Avenue and be able to tell it in three seconds, five seconds. And you also have to understand there's no point in creating some kind of crane shot or long dolly shot or long steady cam shot because it's not how he was going to play it. It's not what he needs. So I would just let my two operators handheld, let him free in the crowd. And I said, just make a documentary about this moment. You know, just you go that way, you go that way. And that's not even shot listed or a storyboard or anything. I said, just get that beat, get get where this cop is hitting him over the head and get this guy throwing a bottle and capture these beats. But, you know, you're free to maneuver. And luckily, again, we were in the actual location. We were in Grand Park right there where the Hilton is. And, you know, when they say, let's take the hill, I mean, it's the actual hill that intercuts also with all of Haskell Wexler's medium cool footage. I thought that you had recreated that stuff. I haven't seen medium cool That's since actually, Stonewall. some of it is Haskell's footage that he shot during the actual event. Oh, That's wow. in the movie Medium Cool, but it was color in 16 when we use it black and white. And, and our footage wasn't trying to recreate, but it was definitely inspired and in the spirit of the footage, but you know, shot with my cameras, my lenses, but in terms of the kinetic energy and all like the handheld, yeah. it was very much approached that way. Also, I mean, no lighting, but it was great having all that stock footage because you could see, you know, the tear gas that was used, uh, the amount of violence, the, the, the hits and, how people were running or moving and, you know, but it also, the, the tear gas, for example, really helped us mask, you know, the fact that we didn't, again, not have that many people. There were 10,000 people in the original <laughs> event. We had like a, on best days, like maybe 250 or something. So, oh, um, wow. yeah. So I just kind of wanted to talk, you know, because outside of the courtroom, there's a lot of period stuff. And I know that, you know, when you're doing period, a great deal of the heavy lifting is being done by hair, makeup, wardrobe, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what, what is your approach? You know, like, I feel like you can make it look like you've just dropped a camera into the period. You can make it evoke the way the period feels, you know, with the way you light it and lens it, et cetera, et cetera. You can make it look like you know, kind of a gauzy thing that happened in the past. Like what drove your choices about like how to, how to portray period in this movie? Well, I'd let it come from the production design, the wardrobe, the hair, of mm. course, the, the lighting fixtures, the practicals, or let's say in a club, like when Abby is in the club, I mean, it's, 
inspiration comes from those beatnik clubs or from like seeing you know bob dylan and greenwich village footage i mean yeah. you know it's just to keep it simple uh they didn't have like when we did walk the line i mean i actually was lucky enough at my uh, rigging after it was a roadie for for cash and i would oh. ask him when, when did he start using color you know like because before i mean we had black and white footage of cash but and he goes, yeah, I don't know, not till, I, I don't remember now, like 68 or whatever. And then what colors I would go? He goes, just red and maybe a blue and later. You know, so I tried to, you know, not do something that they wouldn't have, obviously. Uh, and then in the conspiracy office in this case, I mean, it's very much motivated by practicals, period practicals, warm yeah. tungsten bulbs. Uh, I don't try to stylize really likewise or do anything in the DR with filtration to give it, let's say, a tobacco tone and stuff. I like that to come from the elements in the frame, the design, uh, the textures, and, and uh, you know, I, my approach is always na natural light and light that really makes sense. And, of course, sometimes you can stylize something, play somebody's silhouette or with a table lamp that's low and just... I mean, you can still create style, mm -hmm. stylized lighting or uh, frames with very simple devices are very simple lighting techniques so um and typically i don't use atmosphere and smoke but i mean this is my second 60s movie of course everyone is smoking i mean but <laughs> ford versus ferrari were like no not really i mean i think we have the one italian guy but like i'm like all these guys all these mechanics who think they weren't smoking like all the time <laughs> and but here, I mean, actually, the courtroom, I use smoke, and I, I normally wouldn't. I wouldn't have these beams coming in and through smoke, and I hate moving smoke. And But, you know, people were smoking in court back then. They were allowed to smoke in the courtroom during the trial. So, Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show. I'm assuming that we have this in, in the other two interviews that we did with you, but if people want to find your work online, where should they go? I mean, there is a, a, a fade papamichael.com that is not always very up to date, but it has some of the commercials I work on and, and the feature trailers and yeah. I don't think we've ever had a DP on who was like, my, my, my website is totally up to date. Go to my website right now. They're always, everybody's like, yeah, I, ha I need to work on my website. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're always so busy. And then, you know, going back and fixing all that stuff up, it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm doing a feature right now. Then I wrap on Friday. Then I go to Slovenia the next day to do a Mercedes commercial. I mean, we just never really get a break. So, um, so you're always kind of moving forward. I think that's, uh, that's a great place to leave it. And uh, thank you again for coming on. Third timer. So excited to have you back. Cheers. All right. So that was Faden Papa Michael. Thank you so much for being our first three-peat. It was great. First three-peat. You remember like on Saturday Night Live when they'd have the five-timers club and like, right. uh, yeah, like Tom Hanks when he joined the five-timers club, everyone had like matching jackets and they had like a smoking room. You know, do you remember the secret handshake? Uh, it was something like, I'm great, you're great, or something. No, I forget. One, two, three, four, five. You're great. No, you're great. Ah, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so Faden, you know, we need to get, uh, I mean, honestly, I think it just mostly speaks that Charles Pappard hasn't come back to us. Oh, yep. Zing. Charles Pappard. No, Charles. I mean, <laughs> guy's got a lot to say and, uh, and interesting stories. And if I will also say a silky smooth voice that is pleasant on the ear. You know what? What I'm going to say is that COVID has made me very sad because uh, last year, for the first time, I went to Charles Papper's 
famous Christmas party, which is not actually during Christmas. It's in that week before yeah. uh, New Year's. It's Christmas. It's Christmas and New Year's in there. And he calls it the taint of December. Yes. And, uh, I've and, never gone. I, oh I've wanted God. to go every year and he always invites me and I don't go because I'm a what, douche. Fantastic party. That guy, that guy knows how to throw a party too. So yeah, no, Charles, you, we, you need to come back at least two more times. And also, I mean, frankly, Larry Fong. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we, we got to get Larry. Absolutely. We got to, we got to get some more, uh, two, two and three, but you know, what's Fong cool about time. having fade and come on three times. And I, and I really mean this is I feel like when we bring someone on the first time, we kind of go through their whole career and their whole method and their whole whatever. But in this case, we just talk about one movie and I feel like we're doing it with a movie that's just coming out now, but we could bring on, you know, we, we could bring on Larry Fong and just do Watchmen or, you know, just do Sucker Punch or something like that. Go that into a so deep fun. dive about something that even just say, you know, hey, talk about something you want to talk about and let's get like really in the weeds about it because I think people really dig that. And uh, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> There's about six different DPs, who, you know, big time ASC DPs on the show. And we could bring them back and have them just talk about Red Shoe Diaries. That's we could, well, seriously, we, we should do, we should get a Red Shoe Diaries panel going. Are you kidding me, man? You know, we know so many people who worked on The the Room, too. I keep saying we should do The Room panel. Yeah, so. that would be interesting. <laughs> I think we could do a Red Shoe Diaries panel. We could do uh, we, we could definitely do a Roger Corman panel. Definitely. Definitely do that. Um, I would obviously love to do like a low budget horror panel Mm. and it would be great to get the people who have gone on to do Oscar caliber stuff and just talk about like their, their beginnings in, in the, in the grungy horror movies that are what I first knew them all for. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be fun. Mike Mickens back and just do Leprechaun in the hood. (laughs) Uh, I get Chris Coleman to come back and just talk about Phantasm. Oh my God! Would I love to just talk to him about fantastic? But 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 we do have Don Coscarelli coming up. So that, that's uh, true. That's true. And now short ends. So Ben, it's our our famed short end time of the show. Uh, what what is your obsession this week? Even though I know we already had. Well, it's really only my my week. half week obsession. Oh, okay. Um, well, as I yammered on about for a long time uh, the other day, I am a part of a Video Palace book that is coming out. I I wrote a story called Ecstatica. That's a piece of this book that's kind of deepening the mythology of Video Palace. And you could pick it up having never listened to the podcast and have no problem reading just an anthology of cool horror stories that are kind of all around a theme. Uh, Or you could listen to the podcast and use it to deepen your understanding of this character or whatever. All right. Um, I'm sold. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I already already went into that. I'm not going to I'm not going to log roll that much about that. But what I wanted to talk about was actually this independent bookstore uh, that did a we we did a signing there. And if you're in L.A. and you're in the horror world, you will eventually set foot into this place. It's in Burbank. It's called Dark Delicacies. The website is darkdel.com. And it's the kind of place that I'm just glad exists. It is uh, mostly for books. I mean, they have other merchandise. They've got, you know, backpacks and shirts and ties and suspenders and, and stuff and, and memorabilia. Yeah, it's a little bit gothy, but it's it's like an all horror bookstore. And, you know, you walk in the place and immediately you're like, this is my place. If you're if you're like me, you walk in the door and you're like, these are my people. This is my place. Why don't I know everyone here? It's not like walking into a party city in October. No, it's not. Because, <laughs> <laughs> no. you know, uh, that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when, when you're No, saying, <laughs> no, it's a bookstore. It's a um, bookstore, okay. But, uh, you know, it's mostly books. So and it's they, Barnes & Noble in October. Sort yeah, of. <laughs> yeah, sure. Look, man, in, in this era where, everyone, where independent booksellers and stuff like that are all getting just 
crushed and smashed by Amazon because obviously I can get anything I want on Amazon and I might be able to get it cheaper than I can get it at a place like this. It's great to see uh, a cool mom and pop place. Like the guy who owns the place, his name is Dell. He's in there. And is, it, uh, is that where delicacies comes from? Because I, 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 I'm guessing it's darkdell.com. Okay. He's okay. Dark Dell on Facebook and Twitter, etc. But no, it's it, it, uh, he kind of looks like John Carpenter. It's it's a oh. it's a it's a really. Uh, I was talking to uh, the woman who's uh, his co-owner when I was doing the the signing, and I was like, "How are you guys doing through COVID?" And she's like, "Actually, we're doing pretty good." Like, and it's because I think they're known not just in LA, but they're known in kind of the genre community around the country and people know to buy stuff from them. And, you know, she was saying like, yeah, if you, if you get the book on Amazon, it's going to be a little cheaper than if you get it from them. But if you get it from Amazon, I mean, honestly, I mean, I guess you're keeping some Amazon employees employed and making Jeff Bezos richer. But he, with these is, people, these are like <laughs> real people who you would run into the, in the grocery store and their dream is to have this this little oasis for people like me that carries a bunch of cool horror stuff and, and kind of becomes like a cool meeting place. And in the era of COVID, it's, you know, like I, I went there to do the signing on a day they were closed. I was the only person in the place. Like they don't, they're not really if if you go there you have to wear face coverings and they only let so many people in the store at once blah 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 but um you know i've been there when they've had big signings and stuff like that and you know, actually uh i believe that was where i got ray harryhausen's autograph um Ooh, yeah bad. yeah i mean they hey, get they get huge huge friggin' awesome people to come in there and, and do these autographs you sound like you know we, we don't do Maybe we should. We don't do autograph signings over at, at Hot Rod, but it sounds like you've kind of described a little bit of the place. We we get less so during COVID, but people coming by and hanging out and talking to other people and, you know. Well, that's what uh, you want. I mean, like you want the social interaction. I mean, I feel like that's when you know that you, you know, if I mean, for a camera place, if, if you go there and, and talk to anyone at Hot Rod, immediately you're going to know that like these people know what they're talking about. They have the best interests of their customers at heart. You know, like they're not going to try and sell you a bunch of junk you don't need they're not gonna they're not gonna rip you off and uh I'm, I'm sorry i didn't mean to turn this into a hot rod commercial but i feel like when you walk into a place where people really care about what they're doing it makes a difference you know and i feel like you wouldn't open up a horror bookstore unless you really cared uh, I, I agree. And, you know, I got to say Dark Delicacies is famous in, in Burbank. You know, Bur Burbank's an interesting place, but uh, they had a they used to be on Burbank Boulevard for a long time and they had a big sign and the building was sort of like a blood red color. I know they've moved now. Uh, I mean, they're just the around the corner from where they used to be. The, exactly. There was like some but, movement to up the rents in that area and it ran a lot of people out. It did. And I'm glad that they didn't. And there there are quite a few sort of like indie geeky fun sort of stuff in Burbank. Burbank as a city, it's like it, it emotionally matured to about 17 and stopped. And it's like the whole city is like stunted. I know I've talked about this on, on the podcast before, but really it's, it's kind of bizarre. There's like fifties diners, tons of them. These like, you know, diners, I know you're a diner. Chili guy, John's. So that's, yeah, there's a chili, there's a chili. I can't, can't stand chili John's, even though it's, it's right near my, my office too. <laughs> um, yeah, that 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 place. Do people know? That, that do, do, have we sick. gone over what a food snob you are on the podcast? <laughs> you know, I go to, I've only been to Chili of... John's a handful of times, and I'm like, hey, this place looks cool and chilly. Like that's kind of the extent of my thought oh, process. Man. For me, like Burbank is a food desert. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, we we do have like kind of like random stuff there, and and like comic book shops in particular. Like Burbank has like six comic book shops, and I think like the national average for a, a city our size is like 0.5 or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. and we got six of them. We have like all these classic car sort of like refurbishing places, and uh, you know, all kinds of like classic car garages and upholstery and this. And you're always seeing like Jay Leno driving around town in some sort of you know 1920s something or 1950s. You know, hot I've been rides. in LA for yeah. 21 years, never seen Jay Leno driving around town. I always hear people. Uh, I've seen Angeline driving around town about 500 times. Never once seen Jay Leno. I posted a picture on my Instagram of Jay Leno right down the street from me the other day. Nice. And that's what he does. He drives exotic cars around town. So you, you can't miss him. Anyway, well, uh, Dark Delicacy sounds like like an awesome place. And you did a book signing there uh, during COVID. I assume that was probably not a big crowd who showed up for that. But you signed a lot of books. No, no, there was no yeah. crowd. Like, like I said, it was closed. I went in and they just had a stack of books. They had everyone who was signing the book come in. And we did it individually. There were never more than one of us in the building, and they're selling them online. Nice. So you can you can get the autographed books online. I'm not really trying to shove that down anyone's throat, although I think the book is awesome, and I hope everybody listening to the sound of my voice uh, decides to at least click on the link and think about buying the book. You don't have to actually buy it. You know, if you go that far and it's not your thing, I don't want to force it down anyone's throat. But I think if you read it and you're like, hey, that sounds kind of cool, you'd probably like the book. But go check out Dark Delicacies because I feel like if you're, especially if you're a genre fan like myself, I think you'll you'll find something on there that you're way into. Nice. So, Ilya, what is your short end this half week? Okay, uh, I decided to try Peacock. I hadn't tried Peacock yet and I started going through it. And it's delicious, right? <laughs> I mean, you got to cook it just right, but... <laughs> if you put enough oregano and and enough uh, cinnamon in it, it's it's great. Uh, it, well, I'm 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 referring to, of course, the uh, the new NBC Universal streaming service, oh. rather than the 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 flightless bird. Well, actually, I take that back. It does fly. No, they they it, fly. There's yeah. one in my neighborhood. It's a friggin' pest. <laughs> that what what really is pestilent about them is I think the sounds that they make. Oh my God. No, uh, peacocks, when they, when they cry out in the middle of the night, right outside your window, like this one did in my neighborhood repeatedly, uh, it just sounds like a baby being murdered outside. (laughs) And of course, when you're asleep and it's three in the morning and you have a baby in the next room and you hear that noise, you think someone's murdering my baby. You wake up, you have an adrenaline rush. Then you're like, no, it's just that fucking peacock. And you go back to sleep pissed off. Well, hey, fun fact, uh, a lot of places are closed during uh, the pandemic. But actually, if you order your tickets online, the Los Angeles Arboretum, and actually it's a really good place for people who have kids and want to get out because Mm. it's incredibly outdoors, incredibly spacious, very, very, uh, you know, a few number of people anywhere through the Arboretum here. It's a huge outdoor thing, but they got tons of peacocks and they, they, they're all over the place. They're on the buildings. They'll pose. You brought it home back to Peacock. So tell me about Peacock. Okay. Peacock. So I've got this theory and Peacock is holding true to it, that all these new streaming services must have some sort of big sci-fi tent pole to try to draw in the crowds. I mean, CBS all access did it with uh, all of their, their Star Trek stuff. And then uh, Picard and yada, yada, yada. I love Picard. Yeah. And Peacock doing it with brave new world so uh brave new world of course based on the aldous huxley novel of the same name mm-hmm. they have come out with the sort of like slick and glossy i've only watched the first two episodes but that's all that you can watch for free they are actually doing sort of a freemium sort of model where if you like their original content you don't get to watch all of it for free they give you a taste and then you can subscribe and i think the rate is something like four dollars a month or something so it's it's relatively their, their motto is peacock we're like a crack dealer <laughs> first hits free yeah so uh, you can also have an ad free model if you're willing to pay a little bit more money but i found something interesting by doing some googling 
if you're an Android user, uh, if you have like, I think it's an and Android user or a Gmail account, there's a few different things that, that you can do. But if you mm-hmm. sign up then through the, I think it's the app on your phone, or I don't remember exactly what it is, but if you Google this, you'll find it. Uh, instead of getting a week free, they'll give you a month free right now. You have to do it before October 31st, but if you do that, they'll give you a, a full month free. You can subscribe and then you'll get to see all the episodes of Brave New World and all the episodes of all their other uh, premium sort of stuff going on there for free for 30 days instead of for seven. And then you can decide if you like it or not but that's pretty cool so i i'm i'm signing up for that i'm gonna watch some more of it but first two episodes i give it a thumbs up it, it uh at first episode i wasn't really not sure what i was in for by the time i finished the second one i was like all right i'll give it a shot i'll i'll keep going i'll at least try my my free access pass now to to, to watch a little bit more can i uh, log roll for a friend of mine sure uh, vis-a-vis peacock so uh at the sacred fools theater where i used to be a member and i've done lots of work and met many great friends over the years there was a young woman who is in a show called uh king of kong the musical if you've ever seen the documentary the king of kong sure it was a musical uh performed every role performed by two women one of them is lauren van curen who's still a good friend of mine and the other one was a then unknown amber ruffin and uh now she has her own show the amber ruffin show every friday on peacock uh she was she left la a few years ago to go write for seth meyers she's uh great on camera so they would give her lots of on-camera stuff to do like she would do a bit called amber says what and now she's got her own show on peacock so go amber i just gotta take a step back king of kong the documentary got turned into a musical all performed by two women so meaning like steve Weeby and billy mitchell like every single part in that like correct and, and so lauren, lauren van curen lauren van curen played steve Weeby, Weeby, uh and and amber ruffin played billy mitchell uh, with like a mullet wig and a beard and it was it was and they played every role by the way um and, and it was just and it was directed by the way by brendan hunt who is on ted lasso on apple tv right now he's oh, yeah. on it and he's one of the writers on it so he's coach beard no yeah 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 uh yeah so brendan brendan's an awesome guy too and he he directed that play and it was a play that was a competition called serial killers and at the end of the whole thing uh it 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 it, only one show can win you know it's the audience votes yeah and it came down to the king of kong the musical versus one i directed and i and i and i lost i lost (laughs) oh man but uh have you been able to recover the your self-esteem from that bitter loss to the king of kong musical uh i was very happy that i at least got to it was actually one of my favorite things i've ever done on stage However, a few people came up and they're like, you didn't think you were going to actually beat those two, right? Like, they're magic. <laughs> is, is there a trailer or something that exists online of King, the, uh, King of Kong the musical? Because I... There probably is something on uh, Sacred Fool's website. I'm sure that they have some of the musical numbers because they would do a musical number every episode. And and uh, Lauren and Amber would do like these insane fast changes too. So they would like run off stage, change their wardrobe, or they'd have wardrobe underneath their other wardrobe and come back as a different character. And uh, they, I, it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen on stage. And and you didn't. I mean, the thing is that like the King of Kong is a great documentary, but this was many years after it came out, and probably most of the <laughs> yeah, audience was wasn't say. even familiar with it. And. And and because uh, it was only like, I don't know, probably like six, seven years ago. And um, I just wanted to give a shout out to Amber, who uh, I flatter myself to say that we're friends. But uh, but eh, I, I know Amber. <laughs> and she's really cool. And uh, and I'm, I'm really it's really nice to see talented, nice uh, people who are good people at heart uh, getting a, a big break. And she's got her show. And I hope it, it uh, goes uh, well, on. I really on, hope on that forever. there was a musical number, you know, maybe billy mitchell singing about playing donkey kong or something like that which uh 
I yeah no that's that was the whole the whole show was was that it it was constantly that. <laughs> oh, and this is actually crazy. But a few mm-hmm. years ago, they brought it back for one day at the Fringe Festival in L.A. and Billy oh Mitchell God. himself came to see it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's so awesome. If you look on my Instagram feed, you will see a picture of me with Billy Mitchell because he was there that day. That, that's so funny. That's that's really good. All right. So so and he and and I mean a good sport because Billy Mitchell. You don't usually have clear-cut villains and good guys oh, no, he's, in real he's life. The and <laughs> Billy Mitchell is totally a villain in that documentary that really happened. In real life, Billy Mitchell is a villain, he, he was, and he's a good sport he was probably, to come out. and. He was probably painted slightly unfairly. Probably was. But based on my interaction with him... You'd say no? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say he was pretty accurate. Oh, okay. I mean, he was, ni- he was nice enough to me. I mean, he wasn't, you know, like a terrible person. But I, I, I feel like that movie captures him. And we have gone so far afield <laughs> we, we, of we have you talking the, about Brave New World on Peacock. There is no one listening left now. This is, this, the show is over. So, hey. Uh, let, maybe, maybe Amber Ruffin's listening. <laughs> oh, I, I, that would be wonderful. Hey, uh, uh, please like and subscribe. We're going we're gonna to post something soon to YouTube. Not yet, but soon, very soon. Hopefully by the time this, this uh, episode goes live, you could subscribe to us on YouTube. We d- will have a channel there where we're going to do some breakdowns the first one's going to be from adam lisa gore who uh, of course of sandwich video fame he he has a very fantastic short called how to vote and we do a breakdown of it and that's going to go up there in the next couple of days so hopefully by the time you hear this if you go to youtube and type in cinematography podcast you will see the cool how to vote video from and then vote and then vote i'm sorry i know we're not political but friggin vote yeah if you're if you're an american it's time to vote and you know how i want you to vote and do what you're going to do but just know I'm going to be judging you if you don't do it the way I want you to do it. <laughs> and watch out for the fake ballot boxes. There's a few of those out there. Yeah, there are for real. Oof. All right. So, uh, Ben, where can people find you? Uh, please go find me at BenRockOnline.com. I'm not going to go into the story again. <laughs> and you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, HotRodCameras.com, and on all the socials involving Hot Rod Cameras. We're the only one. So let's thank some people. Uh, let's start by thanking our amazing producer, Alana Cody, who uh, arranged this interview with uh Faden, uh who is in Greece I mean it's like yeah she's she's kicking all the ass it's, it's just amazing what she does thank you very much let's thank uh let's go out of order let's thank uh let's thank Ben Katz and then we'll put Kay Zalatrachi at the at the end because you know he's not listening anyway but you just kind of but you blew it because you just said his name oh, sure. but yes thank you Ben Katz for your fine editing and I hope we didn't make your life too hellish by rambling on and on about stuff that really didn't matter I, I hear he's got a long drive so I don't know when he's going to get to edit this one he's driving from like another state right now that guy has done more traveling since COVID than I do in a normal year. Yeah, I don't know. He's a he's he's a he's a worldly guy. Gets gets. And lastly, as you as you spoil spoiled. <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> That's what I do. Thank you to Kay's Alatrachi, who maybe is listening to this episode. Probably not. Yeah, he, but he, uh, he wouldn't. He if he was, I don't think he'd tell us. I don't think he would. Although he did, I forget which episode he said he listened to, but he when he did listen to it, the one time he did in what seven years, uh, he he said something to me. He's about busy it, like composing some score for something. He, he's he's composing he's composing while doing visual effects and color grading simultaneously and directing. That's right. All right. So hey, until next time, this has been the Cinematography Podcast. We'll see you next week, or you'll hear us. One of those things. Yeah, if you see us, it's yeah. You're, you're, on you're, drugs. you're standing outside of my house, and that's stalking, and that's weird. Get off, yeah. get off the mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You went with drugs. I went with drugs. You went with stalking. Either way. <laughs> All right. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.